Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is the Solo Collective, and I'm Rebecca Seal. I am fascinated by the guest that I'm talking to this week, Henry Holland, who is probably best known for his fashion label, House of Holland, which he founded back in 2008. He is also a podcaster with a brilliant podcast called What Were You Thinking? And he's just started his own new solo endeavour, which is ceramics. And you can find that online if you search for Henry Holland Studio. And I wanted to talk to him because I wanted to talk about passion and identity when it comes to work, particularly when we work by ourselves. I have a kind of difficult relationship with the idea of passion. I'm actually not that into it. (laughs) I don't think it's a particularly useful way of thinking about ourselves when we work. And I wanted to talk to Henry because I know that he is very passionate about his work. And what's happened to him is that in 2008, he started his business, House of Holland. And then in March 2020, it came to an end and the business was sold on. And I wanted to talk about what that felt like, starting something off on your own and having it be very successful and then having it finish. I wanted to know what that had done to his sense of identity. And I wanted to talk to him about what it was like to start something new as well, because he's got a new solo venture making ceramics. So I wanted to find out how all of that was fitting together for him. And I think it's a really useful conversation because it's not very often that you get to talk to people about the end of something. And it turns out that for him, at least, it wasn't quite as terrifying as he thought it might be. And he is in the process of putting himself back together as an identity after all of that happened. Could you talk me through a little bit about how you started your business, House of Holland, in the first place? Because I've read that you you said, um, I started my entire business as a joke. And then it was so successful. It's like, how... How did that? <laughs> how, did, I, how can you start such a big business as a joke? <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes I feel guilty about that phrase, but it is so true. And I think that's why my business was successful, because it wasn't a preconceived, premeditated idea. And people could see that there was an authenticity to it. And it was exactly as you would imagine it was, you know, it had that kind of fabled story behind it, like, you know, a kid printing T-shirts in his bedroom that were then sold in Barney's in New York and Dover Street Market. And it kind of had this sort of fairy tale mystique to it, which if it had been a premeditated idea from a PR manager or a marketing exec somewhere about how they were going to launch a brand, then it just would have fallen flat on its face. But when you talk about passion and identity as well, I think, I, yes, the, the concept behind my business was a joke, but every from the second I decided it was a business, it was just all about passion. Like it, it, it needed so much passion to kind of maintain the level of focus and drive. And I think when you talk about identity as well, like when you're working in any sort of creative outlet in any sort of creative industry you put a piece of your heart and soul into every 
piece of work that you create. It did. And, and I was, you know, I was working in London in magazines. I was working at Smash Hits magazine, which some people may or may not remember. And, you know, I was desperate to be a part of the kind of the higher echelons of the fashion industry. And so these T-shirts were kind of a joke about the fact that it was I was nowhere near. And they were sort of like a commentary on the fact that I wanted to be, I called them fashion groupie T-shirts. You know, I was a fashion groupie and I idolized these young designers and I wanted to be a part of their world. And so, so many things about the success of those t-shirts I learned in hindsight, you know, they, they became like a band t-shirt or a football shirt for the fashion industry. And it was, you know, it was before the dawn of social media. All we had at the time was MySpace. And so the fashion industry was still seen as this very closed, bitchy, slightly stuck up, kind of not very warm and friendly and funny industry to be a part of. And so the whole ethos behind the t-shirts and then later the brand became about blowing the doors off that you know and and allowing people to show that they had a sense of humor and that they were in on the joke so all of those things I I wish I was smart enough to have pre-planned and thought about at the time but at the time I literally just started them as a joke and because it was a joke people got the joke and people you know it resonated with other people and that's sort of why it worked. So was there a kind of a pre-plan to move into fashion design rather than magazine journalism? Or was that just a kind of, was magazine journalism was the thing that you were shooting for at the time? Absolutely, yeah. I studied journalism and at the time, like it was a very old school, straightforward journalism degree. And it was very much focused around history and politics and, you know, graduating to then go and work in local newsrooms to work your way up to broadsheet to the very traditional term of journalism and I was sat there in these lectures being like why has nobody mentioned Vogue why is no one talking about magazines why has nobody said anything about any other you know subject matter which is what I'm here to learn to write about and so I set about at that point trying to make my degree a fashion degree as best I could by getting as much work experience interning anyone who had the word fashion on their business card I was offering myself as a slave to do whatever they needed. And um, and that's how I found myself at Smash Hits is because a friend of a friend introduced me to a teen magazine that was across the corridor and they had a fashion department and I went and was the fashion assistant and, and that was it. So I was very much focused on traversing my way up the magazine world. It's quite a traditional course once you sort of get into it that teen magazine journalists end up being women's magazines writers or you know and kind of my editor at the time was Lisa Smazarski he's now the editor of Stylist for example so that was my focus and the t-shirts were literally as I say they were a joke just for a little sideline never really intended to be a business or to be sold to any extent other than pocket money to buy myself you know a few drinks on a night out and give me and my friend something to wear at nightclubs so I'm guessing that the transition from that point where it's like fun to this point where you've got this big brand and you're the you're the top of a team that's massive that transition isn't it, it or or mm. was it gradual yeah. and therefore manageable that to me that sounds like quite a big shift from being kind of on your own printing t-shirts in your bedroom to in a very power, like a very powerful position for in in terms of the influence that you have on a lot of people's lives 
who are working for you. Is that, did that feel that way? Definitely. And that, that was the pressure. It was the, the, the influence you have on the people closest to you and the fact that, you know, you're responsible for paying their bills that month and, and that kind of thing. But yes, that did become one of the biggest and hardest parts of the whole thing and the most stressful elements of it. But from the second I started out doing it, it was in the public sphere. Mm. I didn't go to fashion college and so I didn't have three years of studying where maybe I was evolving my creative output without then opening myself up to criticism of the world's media. Yeah. I had that from day one. And so it definitely, it was a baptism of fire, of course. And it was at times soul destroying and heartbreaking you know and people tear it down and people say negative things but it also definitely gave me a real thick skin and a resolve and a kind of a real dedication of like sort of looking inward more and making sure that I was happy and proud of my output personally and I think you know if people detracted from the work and then I looked at, back at it and was like yeah that was shit then there's nothing more heartbreaking than yeah. that because you know that you've gone out there and put something out shit and you've been called out on it. Whereas if, you know, people, you go out with something that you truly honestly believe in and are proud of and can wholeheartedly say that you're really proud of the work, if somebody detracts from that, then it's just not for them. And that resolve takes time to learn. It's not something that I kind of woke up one day and was like, I don't care what people say about me at all. And that was still never the case. But you learn to deal with it in a different way. Yeah. So the only parallel between your life and my life is that we both started things on our mm. own. <laughs> and yeah. when I did that, I kind of, for the first six years or so, I just put my head down and grafted and I didn't really think about what I needed to consider in terms of how I wanted my life to look and, you know, where I was going or any mm. of that stuff. I just kind of put my head down and wrote and wrote and wrote. And mm. like you, like I didn't have any family connections. I, d this isn't a world where I didn't grow up in all of this in, in journalism, mm. um, in the media and publishing. Uh, my parents are social workers. It's, it's definitely not, <laughs> definitely not a publishing connection. And I found it really lonely trying to figure out how, where to get the information from. And actually, that's why I wrote the book solo in the end, because if, if I was finding it hard to find the information, other people would be too. So where did you go for information about how to manage this stuff when you're the kind of the top of your brand's triangle and, and you know, and it's named after mm. you as well. It's like, how did you how did you kind of piece together how you managed it? So the first thing I did was um, I called up my best friend who I met at senior school when I was 11 years old and I insisted she quit her job as a model agent and she came to work for me. And so for the first few years, it was us against the world and I had that partnership and I had that comfort, not only on a professional level, but on a personal level as well. But like it was later on when it started to feel lonely again, when I started to feel like a responsibility for everyone else again but actually I was really lucky in the in the early years that she was by my side and you know we did we did it together we built it together and um that was so important to me because so you know with it being so public facing and it being in the public eye that it was really important to have strong true friendship behind that to kind of talk you down to comfort you and to know who you really are when people are saying things about you that aren't necessarily true. Do you think that's a message which sort of you can say is writ large for people who are doing their own thing, whatever that may be? 
you know, whether you're just working from home or working in a, a shed or a garage, like that you need to make sure that you've got some kind of network behind you, even if it's not directly connected to the work that you're doing, but that there's a kind of a strong social base behind you. Would you say that's sort of broadly true for most people? Absolutely. And I would say that the biggest privilege that I ever found, and I still to this day or still think exactly the same, is that the biggest privilege of starting your own anything is that you get to choose who you work with. And for me, I just have an approach to work that isn't work is hard, work is tough, work isn't to be enjoyed, work isn't a passion, work isn't playful, work isn't fun. None of those phrases make any sense to me. If I'm going to spend the majority of my life doing something, I want to do it with my favourite people. It, it needs to involve my favourite things and it needs to keep me engaged. It keeps, I need to enjoy it. I need to be having fun and it needs to be playful. And all of those things are what I respond well to. And if those elements are present, then I will work 23 and a half hours a day <laughs> to build something and to grow it into something that I that I truly believe it could be. And so even if you're starting something on your own and you're working, you know, especially at the moment, we, you know, we're, we're all kind of working on our own. But, you know, I have a network of, of friends now that I, that I speak to a sounding board or, you know, the kind of unofficial, unofficial group of mentors. So we're probably just, you know, just my mates. Yeah. And it's, it's important that you've got people that will understand where you're coming from and, and get it. When, you, when you're asking for their help and advice and kind of thoughts on something. Because sometimes your partner or your family aren't the right people. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, it, I think it's a real skill if you're starting your own business or if you work in any way on your own, it's a real skill to identify the people that can better you at what you're doing and attaching yourself to them and clinging onto their neck or their ankle and literally <laughs> being like, be my friend, help me. If I call you and ask your advice, please, you know, somebody that you trust in that way. And it isn't always the people closest to you because some, those kind of people can tell you exactly the same thing that your partner told you yesterday. And you'll think it's the best thing <laughs> ever. So true. And then your husband will be like, uh, I told you that yeah, a week ago. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Definitely. It's not important. I know people who um, call it that it's like their informal board of directors. So they're solo, yeah. they do their own thing, but they every six months or so, they try and make sure that they have a, a series of conversations or a roundtable conversation with a group of people yeah. who've got their kind of best interests, a bit of expertise in terms of what they do and are people who are brave enough to call you out on, well, you said you were going to do this thing last year and you never did it. Why didn't you follow up? You know, all of that stuff. Yeah, I think those conversations are incredibly valuable. And you definitely have to choose the people with whom you do it, I think. Yeah, and for me, it's people that I, like, I love and that I have a close, you know, friendship with and that I, you know, I really trust their advice, but also I trust their, them in so many different ways. So fast forward to last year and in March 2020, House of Holland went into administration and then was bought by another party. So it does still exist, but it's no longer run by you, which must have been such a profound sort of shift or shock and it must have had such weird ripple effects through your kind of sense of who you are if if all of those things that you felt about the business are, are so powerful you've got so many positive feelings about it how do you navigate that incredibly hard challenging bit of time do you mind sort of sharing a bit about how that was 
I think at that time it was really sad and it was really, it was, there was a huge emotional process for me to go through like a, a breakup of a relationship or anything emotional. It was really, you know, it was really sad, but I think because I hadn't realized until it got to that point, how much weight I felt on my shoulders that the company represented. So it was really difficult. And I think for me, the difficult part was the year prior. So the lead into it. So, you know, how difficult things got with maintaining the business, the pressures that I felt around keeping it going, the pressures that I felt around, you know, keeping those jobs available for my whole team, for people been doing that now for 15 years. What are pe- people, that's what people know me for. Like, what are people going to, I'm just going to be, what, you know, what do I do? What, you know, what do I mean anymore? All of those things. I kind of went through those questions prior to that happening because like you know and I kind of in some sense I made peace with it prior but then at that moment when I kind of I took the decision to step down and not be a part of the the resale or the the administration I felt such a weight lifted and it was only really at that point that I realized how hard I'd found it maintaining all of those things and sort of keeping all of those things that I said were still true you know I only want to be sort of connected to something if I'm truly like enjoying it and it's so much fun and it's playful and it's happy and things were getting quite serious and it, you know there was lots of serious conversations and I was feeling the weight of the world in some respects on my shoulders and and there was there was a real kind of lifting of all of that which definitely counterbalanced the the sadness that I felt, you know, and it was more sadness, you know, there was no anger, there was no, you know, I didn't feel like it had been stolen from me. I didn't, you know, I felt like I'd had the best time of my life doing something that essentially found its way to me and, you know, created these opportunities that I spent the next 15 years working my ass off to realize all those opportunities I worked really really hard there was no part of me that thinks you know I was handed this on a plate at all but it was sadness but also you know there was an element of relief that you know I I kind of I had that weight sort of taken off me and so there was a there was a balance there, you know. I, found, I found, there was the positive of of the release of of all of the pressures and the weight being lifted off me, and then there was the sadness. But you know, there was nobody, you know, everybody within the team was really understanding, and they could see that we'd done everything that we could to try and make it work. And so, yeah, it was just it it was a sad moment, but it was also a new beginning, and you know, it was a very strange time for it to happen. It's almost like if that was going to happen to me ever if anyone had ever asked me previously what would you want to happen if that was gonna happen house fallen was gonna be no more what would you want and I'd be like well I'd want the world to just pause for six months and give me a minute <laughs> and the, the world <laughs> paused what you got. do you know what I mean like because I have such an inbuilt anxiety around and I'm like such a competitive nature that if the world was carrying on at its usual pace and fashion weeks were going on and events and parties and all of those things that you sort of subliminally connected to what I was doing at the time and and people were launching products and all of these things I would feel a real sense of like well I need to do something like I I I need to find something else new and I need to you know get things moving again and do something different and as it happened I I was given a break you know I was given a moment of pause and reflection and I kind of allowed myself to do that and it was really important. And I think one of the reasons why I feel like it was 
not quite as traumatic as it could have been. That's really interesting. Obviously, there's the awful things that have happened in the world. Of course. You know, and it, it's been a hor- horrific moment. And so many people, you know, all of those things, I'm not saying that there's positives to it at all, but it was just that it allowed me to have a, a moment of reflection, which I would never, I just, I'm, I've never been able to give myself before. So how do you think you go about, or people in general go about kind of rebuilding their sense of identity after something like this? Because I... I took redundancy a long time ago and I really struggled in the kind of run up to it with deciding whether to do it or not with this idea of like, if I wasn't X job, who was I? That was such a big part of how I perceived myself. And it's taken years really to get to a point where I can understand that I am a multitude of different things and that they all add up to make the person that I am. But none of them is actually the only thing that's kind of crucial to who I am. But when you're doing something so consuming as the work that you were doing, was it difficult? Did you kind of, did you have moments where you were like, I don't even know exactly who I am? Or do you think you were built in such a way that that was kind of less difficult than it could have been? I'm still figuring it out. I'm still in the process. I haven't done it yet. I still am feeling pulled in one respect back into this world of design and fashion and creating and kind of using a name that I built for that amount of time to continue to build something else in that similar vein and I'm being pulled in other directions that feel new and exciting and fresh but give me a creative outlet and I'm still very much in the midst of that process I think but I guess to answer your question I also I do think that I I may be built I am maybe built in a way that I love change and I love newness and I'm very comfortable with things changing. And, you know, I find every opportunity exciting, which is probably my issue because I can never say no. (laughs) I'm still trying to figure that out. And it was actually my husband, this is going back to those advice things, but my husband insisted that I make a spider diagram with my name in the centre. And I was like, but I don't think in spider diagrams, I do lists. Like, it's just not how my brain works. Like, and I was really resistant. And I had my name in the center and all the different things that I kind of had in conversation or I was thinking about from my podcast to doing licensing projects as fashion collaborations with other brands using my name to charity work that I was doing. And I focused on quite heavily at the beginning of the sort of process when I was, you know, first kind of going through the business closing, I sort of put it all together and then connected how they all work together. And that did really help me focus a little bit because then, you know, there was a real period of time when I was getting up every day and I was like, well, it's such a huge feat to kind of sit there and say to yourself, okay, what am I going to focus on today? Because for the last 15 years, the minute my brain was conscious not even my eyes open, my brain was conscious. Every waking thought was about my business and how to do it better and how to create things and how to do things. And it was just a real emptiness of just like, what am I going to focus on today? What is it that I want to achieve today? And it wasn't easy and it was a difficult process and there's a real untangling and there's a real kind of like having to reassert yourself as a person without that connection of the business and the brand behind you and I think again this whole process of COVID and nobody seen each other for like a year that has given me that space and time to to not really feel traumatized in the same way by that yeah it is kind of a gift in a way for all the horribleness 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So let's talk about your new, very much solo work, I'm assuming, in terms of the ceramics. <laughs> I'm laughing because the the carbon copy of what's happening to me right now versus September 2006 and a bunch of T-shirts <laughs> is so, it's not lost on me whatsoever. <laughs> So but, what have you done? You've put a wheel. Yeah, you put a I, wheel in your bedroom. Then is that what you? Is it like so parallel? Pretty much. So when I left House of Holland, I started ceramic lessons because, you know, I had this idea and this real focus, and I still do to work in within the fashion industry more as a consultant. And I I love the whole concept of the industry and campaigns and ideas and working on all of the communication side of it and how people digest their information around the industry and how people buy their clothes and all of those things I'm completely still obsessed with. And then I realized quite quickly that I'd not really given much consideration to the creative outlet that my career had afforded me because it got to the point towards the end where you didn't even, it was so secondary, this creative element, because all of the stresses and strains and pressures were based around the financial corporate side of it that the collections were just sort of, yeah, I just do that. You know, we do that kind of, and then I have to go and sit in a boardroom and like try and figure out how we keep doing it. And then we do it and then, you know. And so the ceramics thing just really quickly kind of proved itself as being my new creative outlet. And it's really meditative. You do it by yourself because I'd never made any clothes. Designers rarely make their own clothes unless it's maybe their first graduate collection when they sat in the bedrooms making it with a sewing machine. I skipped that step. You know, to make a collection, I had to hire pattern cutters and machinists and print designers. Like, I sort of went straight in at that side. So I was physically making and building things with my hands that was really on my own. And when lockdown got even more intense and especially over the Christmas period and I wasn't able to go to my lessons anymore, I bought some clay and I carried on doing it in the kitchen, much to my husband's annoyance because it's quite noisy, the technique that I do. I have to bash a lot of clay, a lot. It's called wedging for those that uh, are aware. And yeah, and I just sort of discovered this kind of way of doing things that was like, that just sort of felt like me. And then I just put some stuff out on my Instagram again with no prior plan, with no nothing, with no, you know, ideas. And in the last kind of three weeks, it's become something quite intense and there's a lot of people really liking it and it's getting a lot of attention. And, you know, I've had to think about getting people to help me make it and you've got a studio space and, like the it's literally like the pace is very akin to what it was when I started making t-shirts as a joke and I feel like that phrase is coming back to haunt me so now this one wasn't a joke it was my solo meditative outlet 
and now it's become a high functioning, fast paced, highly stressed business initiative before I even noticed. Does that create like, a, is that difficult to think about? Because you wanted to do it as a thing for you, presumably, and then it gets overtaken by and becomes a thing with kind of demands and impositions. Does that kind of feel all right? Or is it? I'm so aware that this has kind of been presented to me as an opportunity and like, you know, it could last for 20 minutes and it could last for 15 years. And I think the fact that I've been through a similar process before, it makes me more open to the ideas of the potential behind it and how it could work and all of those kind of things. But also the fact that I've gone through the the closing of something, the ending of something as well, it gives me more comfort in the fact that I can just go for this and it could just be nothing. And I'm fine with that. I think that's a very common experience of a business ending or changing really dramatically. I've talked to a few people over the over the last couple of years who've had that experience of like, you gain resilience from the negative experience. It doesn't actually have to be a business closing. And sometimes it's really helpful to think about the mm. things that you've survived prior to the scary thing that you're about to do. But really often you gain that resilience. And then when you're faced with the new thing, whatever it may be, a new business challenge, or it could be nothing to do with work, you can kind of draw on that experience, can't you? Because you know that you can survive. And actually, I think I'm hopeful that this whole kind of collective experience of the pandemic might be a big version of that. Like, I'm really hopeful that we'll find a collective resilience because what really could be harder than getting through the past year for most of us um, in so many varying ways. I think you you definitely gain resilience. And you also, like for me, the thing that is was always so great about my business is that I was always learning. And whether that was something as small as working with a different fabric for a season or showing in a different space or showing through a different medium, there was always newness. There was always things that were new and it was always kind of evolving and developing and it kept me really focused. So I think you gain that resilience, but you also learn from the process of closing a business, like it, which sounds terrible because you never actually want to go through it. But there's a lot of learnings that come from it about not only how to do it or or when the right time is or anything like that, but one of the biggest things about going through that process is the scariness of the unknown, which I guess is just resilience, I suppose. Yeah, it's kind of, it's part of that resilience, but, you know, just kind of learning how that process is and it's not as scary and as horrific as it might be. And, you know, there are kind of there are positives to be taken from it and things that you can learn from it, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, would it be fair to say that it's not actually as terrifying an experience as that we might all think it to be? You know, we might have it built up in our heads that the end of a business would be intense or cataclysmic or just terrifying experience. And and actually, in the end, it's broken down into a series of different elements and experiences and it's not like an earthquake. It's more like a, a really long kind of small earthquake that goes on for a really long time. But I mean, it is like, there are elements of it that are petrifying. And, you know, there's a sense of identity elements. There's the fact that like, how are you going to pay your next mortgage? You know, there's, especially from the closing of a business when you've been self-employed because you've always been responsible for making your own money. And then all of a sudden you're like, but how do I do that now? Because the business that allowed me to do that and created that opportunity is no more. So there are there are really scary elements to it. And you're right. Like most things in life, the unknown is so much scarier than actually going through something. So if we could just 
talk a bit about the idea of passion because I don't know whether you'll feel how I feel about it as a kind of concept, but I have a bit of trouble with it, I guess, because I work a lot with a lot of chefs in my other life as a food writer. And I see in that industry in particular, but in lots of industries, the idea of passion as being a bit dangerous, this idea that you've got to find your passion. And then there's a lot of research to show that people who describe themselves as passionate about their jobs are more easy to exploit. You're more likely to be given the worst bits of the job, jobs that are not in your job description as a whole, and be required to work longer hours. And then I also, I have a bit of difficulty with this idea of finding your passion, just because I think for a lot of people, myself included, there isn't one. (laughs) Like, I love what I do. I love what I do. But it's not my passion. And I'm kind of glad about that in a way, because it doesn't kind of eat me up in the way that it might otherwise do. And I just wondered what you thought about that, because I know it's a word which is kind of chucked about in a lot of these conversations about work and about how to figure out what one does with your life and how to figure out your purpose, if indeed that's something you want to figure out. How does that all sit with you? To me, I think all of it makes perfect sense in different elements. I think, you know, the concept of passion, like we talk about blind passion, you know, when you're so passionate about something, whether it be a person or an endeavor or a career or whatever, you're blinded to so many other things. And, you know, I was very often blinded to the commerciality of certain aspects because I was blinded by the passion of creating something that I wanted it to be bigger and better and the most exciting thing ever and really showing my work in the best light when actually it probably wasn't the best commercial decision to make often, but I was blinded by the passion for the output and for that creative side of it. And so that totally makes sense to me. And and then on the flip side of that, I am fully aware that I am one of the luckiest people alive, that I've been afforded the opportunity to create a career that has been built around my passion. You don't quite realise how many jobs are involved with being a fashion designer until you don't have it anymore. You're a manufacturer, you're a distributor, you're a designer, you're a creator, you're a storyteller, you're a content creator, you're a writer, you're a photographer, you're a stylist. You are all of these things. Well, I mean, I was because I don't have a team of 100, but (laughs) you're an accountant. No, you're not. I did have one of those. To some degree, you you know, you have aspects of your role that are just all, all of these things. But I'm so aware and and grateful that my passion has been, you know, I've been afforded the opportunity to find it, first of all, like you said, and um, and also to be able to build a career in it that for a period of time was successful. So that's why I look back on House of Holland with so much fondness and so many happy memories and there's it's sadness, but it's also gratitude that it happened in the first place. And it was literally the best. It was like living out a dream for a good 10 years. You know, it was just, it was amazing. And I think what you say about um, all the different roles that you occupied is really important. And um, I wrote some a bit in the book called Be Your Own CEO and just like trying to encourage people to understand that when you work by or for yourself, to a greater or lesser extent, you occupy a lot of different roles, you know, from the kind of head of everything and the kind of creative director to the 
office cleaner. <laughs> I, I was just about to say, I still cleaned out the bins on a Friday yeah. when they were overflowing. Yeah, exactly. And you bought the printer cartridges and the loo roll and, you know, like all of that stuff. And it's important to kind of reflect that just because we need to make space for those positions. And we also need to help people have a kind of realistic expectation of what work when you work for yourself looks like. Like even if you're doing something mm. which on paper and our jobs, you know, as a writer and a and a designer are on paper jobs look very glamorous or at least very understandable in the you know you'd assume that what I do is sit down and write but that's not entirely true like I write cookbooks and I often joke that writing cookbooks is um 97% washing up like it's not <laughs> you know it's not so making true. something delicious and leaning against the counter looking like Nigella <laughs> it's yeah um, it's mostly washing up and being a fashion designer is 97% figuring out how you're going to make something and distribute it around the world Often, if the founder is still part of the business, founders seem to be the most agreeable to all the different sides of it, because at one point they've probably have been all the different sides of it. But also I think it's, for me, it was also a negative. It was also a problem because I couldn't relinquish control enough to the people who I had brought in to be like, okay, you manage the that and you manage that I wanted to still have my finger in all the pies and still it's a real skill to learn to go from being a founder to being a CEO I think because those two roles should be quite different but it's often the case that it's a hard transition to make yeah yeah um yeah I can imagine knowing what to put down and whatnot is really hard do you think that this time around in setting something up and kind of starting something new are you kind of creating your solo life from scratch are you kind of thinking right this is what I want it to look like like maybe are there things you don't want to bring with you from the last business I just think often when people start something new after something ending that's the moment where they think right actually I'm gonna I'm gonna put some time and thought into building a life I actually want rather than simply building a business does it feel like that to you? I think with all the best intention in the world, people do think like that and people, you know, try to plan, you know, I'm going to learn from that. I'm going to do it different. And I think like with most things in life, that doesn't always, it doesn't always happen like that. And I think in the same way, the you know, the reason why I talk about the carbon copy of what's happening now with ceramics and t- versus T-shirts is just the pace at which it's happening and how unprepared I am. And about a month ago, I said, I never wanted to make anything again myself and I never wanted to have premises again and I never wanted to have staff again and within a week I seem to have all three <laughs> but I'm not sure you're the best example for this <laughs> I don't I'm not sure that I am no um when you're a founder or you work by yourself and you're starting anything new it's the passion thing again but you're completely like taken away by the opportunity that's presented itself and the excitement behind all of that and that consumes you probably for like you know up to like 15 hours a day for me personally it was really hard to have the self-control to not be carried away by the excitement of the opportunity which if in building something new often is the case Henry, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for this conversation. No worries. Thank you. One of the things about this whole period is that I have done a few conversations like this, but it's been like therapy. Like I've talked about the process of that I've gone through more than I probably have any other thing that's happened to me in my life. And I feel like I'm basically just recording my therapy for people's entertainment. So. <laughs> 
Well, think of it. These are the kind of conversations that we don't have very often, right? We don't get to talk to people who are going through something that many, many, many businesses and small business owners will go through, especially at the moment. And it's all those hindsight things, like by talking about it in settings like this, you learn so much more about how I dealt with it and what's going on, you know? Thank you so, so much for this conversation. I've loved it. Um, And I think other people will find it really, really helpful. Great. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful that Henry was so honest during that conversation. I feel as though it's a rare moment when you get to talk to somebody who is as honest about all of the work stuff that they've gone through as he's just been. So I'm really grateful for that. I think this stuff about passion and work is so complicated because when you're really passionate about what you do, there's no doubt that it can burn you up and spit you out and that can be very challenging But maybe what we should shoot for is a job that we like, maybe even a job that we love. But that won't always be that we're following our passion. For some people, like Henry, it will. There'll be a passion that's really clear. And for him, it was high fashion. But not all of us have that. And not all of us will want to follow that. And that's okay too. So maybe the answer about passionate work is just to be nuanced about it and not too black and white and to say that, having a job you like is enough having a job you love is good having a job you're passionate about is rare if you've liked what you've heard on the solo collective then i would love it if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and do share us with anybody who you know who you think might benefit from joining us in the solo collective You have been listening to a Chalk and Blade original, The Solo Collective, with me, Rebecca Seal. Produced by Laura Hyde, with support from Fatuma Keira, original music by Dee Plume, and mixed by Alex Portfelix. Chalk and Blade. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.